Thank you, Pastor Marvin. Appreciate that this morning. And I uh, appreciate you roughing through all you allergy sufferers. Tough, tough time, of, tough time of year, but hopefully it lets up soon. But I do like the warm weather in May. I do, I do. It feels, feels like we're getting an early summer, maybe? I don't know. At least we're getting a spring, uh, which we don't always get. Uh, I do want to uh, certainly echo the sentiments about Mother's Day and Happy Mother's Day. I thought about a, a word just before we get into the word that I would uh, say to the moms or to the women that are in here. First of all, I would say, um, I know there's, there's some uh, women in here that you're not a mom and you want to be a mom and praying about that. And Wendy and I certainly, and I know Pastor Marvin and Jen certainly know that uh, part of uh, life and story and your story and our story and uh, that's not easy and today's a courageous day for you if you showed up for church it's not always an easy day to show up in church in that situation and um, uh, for you know Wendy and I we've got two kids and that's the way our story went but that's not the way every story goes we get that and so we pray for you and we are grateful for you to be with us in church this morning and as I thought about maybe just a word to moms and maybe to women in general today, I'm grateful for the women in my life, for my mom and the ministry that uh, she has, the blessings she's been to my life and my sisters, for my wife, who's the mom to my kids, grandmothers, um, women in this church who have just been a blessing to me over the years. I'm grateful for that. And I thought the word I might give would be four words that I would speak maybe to moms and to women today. And the four words uh, I think I would want to speak to you is this, don't believe the lies. may sound like a strange Mother's Day word, but don't believe the lies. Don't believe the lies that the world tries to tell you, that you need to have everything all together all the time and be everything to everyone, that you need to look a certain way and own a certain thing in order to be valuable and accepted. Don't believe the lies that the devil tries to tell you, that you're not good enough, that you're a failure, that God doesn't love you, that you're not doing enough. Those lies the devil would try and put in your head constantly. Don't believe the lies in your own head that says everyone else has this figured out that no one else is struggling with what you're struggling, that everyone else's kids just, just joyfully jumped in the car this morning and it was only yours that fought and put up a fight. Don't believe the lies. And don't believe the lies maybe even that you've heard in church at times, that there is one perfect woman or one perfect mom and that you're not it. That's not true. I mean, the scriptures, there is no perfect woman, there is no perfect mom in the Bible. Even Mary lost Jesus at one point. You know, even Mary at one point in the ministry tried to pull Jesus away from ministry. She thought she knew better, you know. Maybe she's like, come on, Jesus, you shouldn't be doing this. There's no perfect moms. There's no perfect women. There are many different women in the Bible that were used by God in mighty ways, uh, there's some of the well-known ones. There's certainly Deborah, who was a judge and a leader. Esther, who was a queen. Ruth, who provided for her mother-in-law and her family. 
Priscilla, though, who taught Apollos. We sometimes forget about Priscilla, who with her husband taught and discipled Apollos. Lydia, who opened up her big house to, to do for ministry. Uh, there's women who actually funded the ministry of Jesus. Those were women who often, out of their own funds, gave ministry to Jesus. Women at the cross. When all the men ran, <laughs> it was the women who stayed at the cross uh, there with Jesus. Women who first saw the resurrected Jesus. And they're elevated in many places and in many ways. But there's no one and no perfect mom and no perfect and one model of a woman. So don't believe the lies. What you need to keep in mind is simply Proverbs 31, 30 to 31. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That if you will live your life walking in fear of the Lord, with him first and him above all, that that is all the Lord asks of you and requires of you. So thank you and uh, thank you for the, the moms and the women in our lives who've been a blessing in many ways. So let's jump into our series, the story of scripture we are picking up. Uh, if you're with us and you're a guest, I recognize on a day like this, we've got some guests. Maybe you're here in church with your mom and we're glad to have you here. And um, you're jumping into the middle of an eight-week series where we are covering the overview of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We're covering, we're actually doing, what we're trying to do is get familiar with this book, the Bible, more so we all understand it. So that's why Pastor Marvin asked you to open to the table of contents, and if you haven't done that, I'll ask you to do that. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in a chair rack below you or right near you. And you can open up to that table of contents, and we're getting familiar with the scriptures. What we've said is the Bible is 66 books, and if you open to that table of contents, you'll see 66 different individual books, 1,100 or so chapters, but one story, one story that God has been telling from beginning to end. And that story, the way we've said it, is God with us so that we can be with him. But there's a lot of different ways you could maybe characterize the main theme of the story of Scripture. Another way to put it is humanity's need for a Savior and God's provision of one. That this is the story that Scripture tells. A couple weeks ago I gave you four words. You can look at it as ought, is, can, will. You know, the Bible starts out, this is how it ought to be. You know, we look around, well, this is how it is. It's kind of a mess in the world around us and how we got here. And when Jesus comes, this is how it can be. We see the life of Jesus. And then after Jesus, this is how it will be one day. Those four words are one way to describe it. Yesterday in our men's prayer meeting, Sam Afeadu gave me another line. I thought this was a good line to talk about the theme of Scripture. Uh, we have a men's prayer meeting at 6 a.m. every Saturday morning. You're invited to come out, men. We're going through the Psalms together. But he said it this way, the God who remembers the people who forget. Now, that's a good way to say the theme of Scripture. The God who remembers the people who forget. Um, and that's, that's often what's going on in Scripture. We've given you these numbers, and I'm not going to ask you to clap them out today. But hopefully somewhere in the last month or so, you've been doing the dishes or driving in the car, mowing the lawn. And you haven't even been thinking about it, but somewhere in your mind comes 512, 5512, 4-1, Anyone that happened to this time? Anyone? Yeah, a couple people, the numbers. And what we've tried to do is we've tried to say, just helping you see, here's the structure that your Bible is in. 
512, 5512. So if you look at that table of contents in your Bible, the first five books are the five books of Moses or the Torah, the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The next 12 books are books of history. But we've also said that history is theology. We learn about God by the way he acts in history. The next five books are poetry and wisdom literature. Poetry and wisdom literature. So that's the genre of that. So you've got Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs in there. That's wisdom literature, poetry and wisdom literature. The next five and 12 are prophets. The first five are longer prophets. They wrote more. We call them major prophets. The next 12 are shorter prophets uh, in length, not stature. I don't know how tall they were. But they, they wrote less. Um, so there we call them minor prophets. Uh, and the prof- we've said the 12, the 5, and the 5, the, the wisdom literature and the prophets, really you put them inside that first 12. Because everything that they're writing about happens in the first 12. So these 5, 5, 12 aren't moving the story chronologically forward. They're telling you what's going on inside that 12. And then there's a gap between the 12 and the 4, and we're actually going to talk about the gap today for a little bit. And then 4 are the Gospels, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you've got one book of history, which is Acts, 21 letters, Uh, to the churches or to Christians, and then one book of prophecy in the book of Revelation. And that's uh, the organization of your Bible. It's really somewhat chronologically, but very much organized by genre. And that's one of the things we've been learning as we've looked at the Bible together. And hopefully that's helpful to you as you read through the Bible. Last week, uh, we left off. Actually, we didn't leave off. Pastor Brian left off finishing up the prophets. We had a guest speaker last week, so we did not talk about the prophets. So if you want to hear about the prophets, here's a very easy way to do it. Go to mounthope.org. Click on last week's Belmont Sermon, and you can hear Pastor Brian talk about the prophets. And they'll tell you what's going on. They'll tell you that the prophets had the job of calling people back in repentance to God and pointing forward to where God wanted them to go. So Pastor Brian finished up with the the prophets there. We're not going to review that. We're going to stay, keep moving forward. And we're moving into what is known as the intertestamental period. And you can figure it out because it is between the Testaments, intertestamental period. There's a gap there between the 12 and the 4, but there's still history that's moving forward. So here's what's going on. The temple has been rebuilt. There's a second temple that's been rebuilt. We talked about um, that the first temple was destroyed in what was known as the Babylonian exile. They destroyed the temple. God's people were taken into exile as God's discipline of them for abandoning him to idols. And the temple, now the people start coming back into the land. The temple's rebuilt, but it's nothing like the former temple. It kind of looks like a shoddy temple. Um, but it's kind of rebuilt. And, but here's the thing. The temple was rebuilt, but what didn't happen is the presence of God didn't return to the temple. Um, in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, and in Solomon's temple, you had a clear, definite moment where the presence of God inhabited the temple. 
In this second temple, we never see that. In fact, in this second temple, behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies, there is really no evidence that the Ark of the Covenant was actually there. Might have been a table, might have been like the Wizard of Oz, like there's nothing really behind the curtain. But there's no evidence that the Ark of the Covenant was ever recovered. That Ark of the Covenant was where the presence of God dwelled in the tabernacle and in the temple. And Indiana Jones tried to find it, and he, I don't, you know. But there's just no evidence that it was ever, reco- it was ever there. There was a curtain, but probably nothing behind it. And that's where the temple stands, and that's where the people of God stand at about 500 B.C. Um, Haggai, one of the prophets in that last 12, said this, though. He said, the latter, glory, the latter glory of this house, meaning the temple, shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, that's quite a statement, because this house doesn't look anything like the former one. doesn't look at all. And Haggai says, no, the glory of this house is going to be even greater than the glory of the one before it. How's that going to happen? We're going to see that today in just a few moments. But I tell you all that to tell you, because that's the setting. Because the setting is that God's presence has not come back to God's people. The setting is that God's people really feel a distance between them and God. The setting is that it kind of feels like God is silent. And I want to use that as our paradigm this morning because I think there are times in our walk with the Lord where I know for me, and I'm going to guess for you, where you may have felt like God is silent, that maybe God is distant, that maybe God is quiet. And that was certainly what was happening during this time period with God's people. So I want to use that as our paradigm because here's what I know. There are times when I don't necessarily experience God's presence like I do it. I don't feel it. Is that true for you too? You know, there are times when I walk in and I walk into worship and I'm like, oh man, God is here. I'm in it. I feel it. God, you love me. I love you. And I feel it. But there are other times I walk in and I'm like, I don't feel anything. But you can't base your walk with God based on feelings. You can't base your relationship with God on feelings. Because if you and I do that, we are going to be up and down and we are going to be all over the place. Your relationship with God needs to be based on a robust theological belief about who God is. And you need to know that based on whether you are experiencing feeling God or not. And so I want to kind of, in looking at this intertestamental period and this four, the Gospels that we're going to jump into today, I want to look at it through that paradigm of when you don't feel close to God, when you feel like there's maybe a silence or a distance, what are the theological truths that you need to hang on to? And I think there are three of them today. We're going to talk about God's timing, His Word, and His character. Theological truths that you and I hang on to when we feel distance from God. So let's jump into the first one. When you're feeling like the presence of God is distant, the first thing you can trust is that God's timing is perfect even when it looks like nothing is happening. All right? God's timing is perfect even when it looks like nothing is happening. So I want you to take your Bible, and even if it's not your Bible, I want you to take the Pew Bible. I'm going to give you permission to do this. And we don't have pews. Why do I call them Pew Bibles? 
chair Bible? I don't know. You're right. I don't know. Just your paper Bible. Uh, there's a page almost always that's going to be between Malachi and Matthew. It's probably a blank page that's going to be between the Testaments. Open it up to there and take out a pen. And I'm going to have you write, and some of you are like, oh, I don't write in the Bible. Just write this in the Bible. It's on a blank page. You can write it. It's okay. Trust me. God's okay with it. And, I'll, and if you're going to write it in a chair rack Bible, you can even write this in a chair rack Bible, because anyone who opens that chair rack Bible, I want to see. On that blank page, in between the Testament, write 400 years. 400 years. Because that's what takes place in this page. There are 400 years between the last time that God speaks a word in what we call the Old Testament and the next time that God will speak a word to his people. And it feels like there's a time of silence, but it also feels like there's a time that God is doing nothing. But actually God is at work in amazing ways and incredible ways. And so that in Galatians chapter 4, Paul will write these words, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law. So here's what's going down. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law. We were looking in our, in our group, our, our sermon study group, at that word time. And here's the thing we all knew because we're seminary students. We know there's two Greek words for time. You know this, right? You know, two Greek words. So there's two Greek words for time. One is kairos and one is chronos. Kairos means like it's, your t- it's the appointed moment. Like it's a moment in time. Like it's not talking about five o'clock, <clears throat> like a time on your clock. Kairos means the moment has arrived. Like it's that time. Chronos means tick, 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 clock time. And we thought, well, Galatians 4, 4, that's got to be kairos. That Greek word's got to be kairos time. This is the moment God has set the stage. And when we all looked at it, it was chronos, and we were so disappointed that we couldn't, like, give that theologically rich kairos moment. But, of course, God knows what he's doing. Because you think about it, and we thought, wait a second, of course it's chronos time. Because for 400 years, it's been ticking down, ticking down, ticking down, ticking down until the fullness of time, until the moment is reached, until the time is up and the alarm goes off and the clock is right and everything's in place. For 400 years, God has been at work. You know what's been going on in these 400 years? There was this guy and there was this Greek guy. You remember him? He was pretty great. You remember his name? Alexander, yeah, what did he do? He conquered, like, much of the known world. And you think, well, okay, how does that relate to this? Because he brought a common language. That's why your New Testament is written in Greek. He brought a common currency. And so we have communication going on across the empire. And he brought roads that connected the empire. All roads lead to Rome. Rome continued that when they overtook. They continued the road system, but it was really begun under Alexander. And so in these 400 years, all of a sudden, everything is coming together so that any message that's going to need to be communicated now has roads and avenues and language to do that. God is at work. 
And in the midst of this time also, there's something that pops up in the Jewish people uh, context as they are spread all over the Roman Empire. Uh, There's something that pops up called synagogues. Have you ever noticed how synagogues are all over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, but they're never mentioned in the Old Testament? If you read the Old Testament, you never see the word synagogue. And you say, where did these things come from? It's that in-between page, that 400 years. In that intertestamental period, that's where synagogues popped up. All of a sudden, you had the Jewish people scattered around the Greek and then Roman Empire, and they wanted to gather together to worship, but they didn't have a temple because that's in Jerusalem. So they created these local gatherings of worshipers, and they met in synagogues. And so now you have, throughout the Greek and the Roman Empire, all these people of Jews that are meeting. But not only that, they're in relationship with the people around them, and they're starting to talk about the God that they worship. And some of the people they talk to are starting to be interested. Now, a lot of them don't want to proselytize and become full Jews because there was a pretty big cost to that, especially if you were a male. But there was also dietary restrictions and and all kinds of laws that they had to keep. And they said, ah, we think there may be something to what you're saying, but we're not like going all in becoming Jewish. So they were called God-fearers. And so there were these God-fearers all around the Roman Empire that started to pop up, and suddenly the stage becomes set for a Messiah to come, that a message could be spread and a gospel could be given across the Roman world, and it would be received. And God has been at work for 400 years, even though he hasn't been speaking. So Paul writes, when the fullness of time had come, when the time ticked down, right, to it. Pastor Brian tells me his grandfather used to say that I don't know why people were surprised when Jesus came. They were counting down to it for hundreds of years. Um, that's a joke. You'll get it later. Um, but the, the clock had been ticking down and God said in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman. Here's why I have you write 400 years in your Bible. Because you will have times in your life when it seems like God is silent. In fact, quite often, the truth is this. The closer you get to God, the quieter he speaks. The more intimate you get to God, the less burning bush experience he has to give you and the quieter he speaks. And sometimes you'll go through times of silence with God. And you need to be able to trust that God's timing is perfect, that God is still at work, that God hasn't stopped working just because you're not hearing him speak or experiencing him the way you did at one point in your relationship with him, that God is still at work. You ever seen a a duck on the water, right? This illustration, right? What's going on? I've gotten a little too intimately connected with ducks lately because one has made its home on my pool. Um, And every morning, my devotional ritual now uh, contains reading the Bible, prayer, and uh, acting like a wild man chasing a duck off my pool water every morning with a pole. Uh, But when I look at ducks, and that's not the one that I, on my pool, but when I look at ducks, here's the interesting thing. Right on the top of the water, it looks like everything is calm. Like there's not much going on. But below the water, those feet are paddling like crazy, right? And I think that's something like this 400 years of history, but I think it's also like what often takes place in our life with God. 
that it looks like, God, it doesn't look like anything's going on. And yet God's at work. And God is bringing things about in his perfect time. And that you and I can trust God. We want God to work on our schedule, but we need to trust that he's still at work on his schedule. So when you're feeling like the presence of God is distant, the first thing you can trust is that God's timing is perfect even when it looks like nothing is happening. When you're feeling like the presence of God is distant, the second thing you can trust is that God keeps his promises even when you can't figure out how. God keeps his promises even when you can't figure out how. There were a lot of the promises of God that people would look at the writings of the Hebrew scriptures and they would say, how? How could this possibly happen? How could he be, how could someone come that's a son of David and son of God? How could there be a king on the throne of David forever? We don't even have a king. We're under Roman rule. We're under oppression. We don't even have, how could, how could this happen? God keeps his promises even when you can't figure out how. Let's go back to the curtain in the temple. So there's nothing behind the curtain, but in front of the curtain, ministry is happening. So the temple looks like this. So this is, this is kind of, this is Herod's temple. So it eventually, they took that second temple and Herod rebuilt it and made this beautiful temple. And uh, what you had is uh, just the way that God had prescribed it in the book of Leviticus. So you had the, the holy place where the priest ministered in the holy of holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant should have been. But as I said, in the second temple and in Herod's temple, it wasn't there. That was either empty or there was a table back there. But in the holy place, in front of the curtain, is where some ministry was taking place. Priests would go in. They would burn incense on this altar of incense here to God, and they would perform their priestly duties. And it's in that place that after 400, give or take so many years, about 400 years, God speaks. Anyone know who God speaks to first? How God breaks his silence? Any guesses? Zechariah. It's a man named Zechariah. It's not Mary. It's not Joseph. God actually breaks his 400-year silence with a priest named Zechariah. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And his, he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. He was chosen by lot. You can read that as God providentially chose him because there were 18,000 priests. You would only get chosen once in your lifetime. Here's Zechariah's moment to go in and burn incense before the Lord. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. 
and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord and will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Here's the first word. God, after 400 years, breaks his silence. He does it in the temple If you can put that back up, he does it just uh, in front of the curtain to the right of the altar of incense. Here's where the angel appears. Zechariah is burning incense here. And after 400 years of silence, he speaks and says, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. We know him as John the Baptist. He's going to come in the spirit of Elijah because the Old Testament said Elijah had to come before the Messiah would come. And the spirit of Elijah is on John to call people to repent back to God. And then the Messiah will come. And 400 years of silence have been broken. And then begins the Gospels, that next four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, I can't go into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, We have five minutes about left, five or ten minutes here, uh, to give you an idea of how long that would take. When I first started preaching at Mount Hope as the pastor, I started a series on the Gospel of Matthew. I said, we'll just start Matthew 1-1, that seems like a good place to start, and we'll just preach until we're done with Matthew. Uh, that went 96 messages in three years. That was just Matthew. We're not covering Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in 10 minutes. Uh, but let me, maybe the best I can do, let me give you how each of the Gospels starts. Okay, let me remind you how they each start. Matthew 1.1 starts like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now I hope, if you have been here for the last four weeks... That all of a sudden, that verse, like for you, like for me, is full of theological richness that may have you not have received or understood before. Because Matthew starts off with what? He starts off with the covenants. He said, you know the covenant of Abraham that was an unconditional covenant that said the Messiah would be a blessing to the whole earth. And he said, this is Jesus Christ. He said, you know the covenant to David that said you're going to have a, a king on your throne forever. This is Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of who he is. He is the fulfillment of all these covenants. This is the keeper of God's promises. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. That's why he starts out that way, because he is referencing back to those covenants that Pastor Marvin talked to us about, those covenants, that idea of of, uh, law and grace, the conditional, the law and love that's involved, and this is the covenant-keeping God. Mark 1.1 starts out like this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Starts out clearly saying, understand who this is. This is the very son of God because there was a prophecy that said that he would be adopted and call him son. I love the way that Luke starts off. Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. He was an academic. He starts off his gospel very differently. This is how Luke starts. This is how Dr. Luke starts out his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word and have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now doesn't that sound like a doctor and an academic who is going to write down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit events concerning the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke says, look, I want you to be certain about what you believe. I want you to be certain about what you know. So I'm going to write down. And the Gospel of Luke contains a very orderly account of who Jesus is and what he did. And so that's Luke. And John starts out his Gospel very different than all the rest. He starts out this, in the beginning. Do those words sound familiar? In the beginning. John is hearkening back to the beginning of the story. Remember, 66 books, one story. And John said, I want you to know, I want you to know this connects back here. And you don't even see, well, you see it in English, but in Greek, uh, when John was writing, the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and John is using the exact same words to start his gospel that were used to start the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Bible, in the beginning. And he very carefully, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses those words to say, this connects to that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is saying this part of the story connects to that part of the story. The Jesus that's here is this Jesus that was there with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that started this all in the beginning. John, at the first words of his gospel, is making that connection. So we've got four Gospels. Gospels are good news. Gospels are the message. They're biographies of Jesus Christ. This is how God gave us his message in a person, not a proposition. He gave us Jesus to be able to see, and he gave us four different Gospels to see that, four different perspectives. And you can look, and they write four different ways. Maybe you could, this might be a good way overall to understand. And Matthew really takes an emphasis to show that Jesus is king. He really, he shows a lot of the fulfilled prophecies of the Jewish scriptures, and he really presents Jesus as king. And you can see that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He quotes more of the Old Testament prophecy. He shows that. Mark really wants you to see that Jesus is the suffering servant. He fulfills those prophecies. In fact, Mark is quick to the cross. Before you're halfway through Mark, you're at the cross. You're, you're there. Like, and, and you start reading Mark, you'll see one word that shows up all the time. It's immediately. Mark says, and immediately Jesus did this. And immediately Jesus did this. And Mark's just like, I just want to get through this stuff so you can get to the cross. Because I want you to see that Jesus came to die. And he presents Jesus as the suffering servant. Luke really shows a lot of the humanity of Jesus. Not surprising that God chose a doctor to really give us and show us Jesus' humanity and the fact that he was fully human and fully divine. And John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He wants you to see the divinity of Jesus, that this is God in the flesh. And so we have God speaking in the temple, but we have more than that. We have the fulfillment of Haggai's prophecy that this temple's glory would be even better, even greater than the previous, because Joseph and Mary, on that day to dedicate, they walk into the temple and they bring Jesus with them. And they bring this baby into the temple. And when they do that, 
for the first time in 500 years, the presence of God comes into the temple of God. That God incarnate in the flesh comes into the temple. And a man named Simeon says, I've been waiting. God told me I'd see it before I died. And a prophetess named Anna prophesies over him because she had been waiting because God had told her. And the presence of God comes into the house of God when Joseph and Mary bring that baby into the temple. That's why it's such a significant moment. And later on, Jesus will walk into that temple as a mature man, and he will turn over tables because it's his house, and he will rearrange furniture, and he will say this house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And the presence of God is in the temple of God. God kept his promises. What you need to know is in times of silence when God feels distant, God made promises to you, and you might say, I have no idea how they're going to come about. But you can trust that God will bring them about. God said it would be the son of David and the son of God, and everyone said, how can that be? And then, yeah, here comes Jesus, born of a virgin in the line of David, son of David and son of God. And God brings it about so maybe you have promises in your life that you're not sure how God's going to keep, but I promise you God will keep them. They can be general promises. A promise like Philippians chapter 4 that says, don't be anxious about anything, but God will give you a peace that surpasses human understanding. And that's a promise of God to you. And you may look around and you open up your news feed and you say, all there is is things to be anxious about. I've got all kinds of things to be anxious about. I don't see how I could have a peace that passes human understanding, but that is God's promise to you and he will give you. Trust him for that peace that passes human understanding. Or maybe it's a promise like God says, I will meet all your needs according to my riches and glory. And you say, I've got bills that are stacked up. I've got needs all over the place. I don't see how God can do this. And yet the God who keeps his promises, the God who brings forth Jesus in the line of David and the line of Abraham, the God who keeps his promises will keep his promises to you. Or maybe you've got a specific promise that God gave to you many years ago and you are hanging on to it. Don't give up hanging on to that promise or that word from God because God is the keeper of promises. And if it takes 400 years or 800 years, whatever it is in history, God is working the long play and he will keep his promises. Hang in there. We can look to the Gospels and we can theologically know that we can trust God to keep his promises. So when you're feeling like the presence of God is distant, the first thing you can know is God's timing is perfect, even when it looks like nothing is happening. The second thing you can know is God keeps his promises even when you can't figure out how. The third thing you can know is God's character is good even when things don't feel good. God's character is good even when things don't feel good. Jesus comes to die. He came to go to a cross. His focus is on the cross and no one, not Satan, not Rome, not one of his disciples is going to get in the way of him giving his life as a perfect sacrifice on the cross. This doesn't feel good to everyone around. This doesn't feel good to, to his disciples and his followers, to Peter who says, no, that's not the way it's going to go, Lord. Incidentally, you can never say no, Lord. You know, that statement, 
That sentence doesn't exist. It's a problem. But Peter tries to say, no, Lord, it's not going to happen this way. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This doesn't feel good, and yet it is good. And yet God is bringing about good. It's the question every child asks on Good Friday. How can we call this Good Friday? It's a cross, it's bloody, it's death, it's Jesus dying. Because God is bringing about something good through something that doesn't look good. And so Matthew 27, verse 45 and 54, as Jesus is on the cross, he writes, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. But Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In Matthew 27, verse 51, and behold... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. That picture of the temple, let's see it once again. When we saw that, what Matthew is saying is this curtain that went from top, that was three stories high, as 40 feet high, as thick as a person's hand, that in the moment when Jesus died, in one of the greatest object lessons of all time, God himself takes the curtain and tears it, and to be sure that you know it's God, it tears from top to bottom, and all of a sudden the inside is exposed that there's nothing behind the curtain, but no longer is a curtain needed between God and man, because Jesus has given his life as a sacrifice, and now sinful humanity that could not be in the presence of a holy God has a way to be in God's presence through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And so we started out with the curtain and the curtain with nothing behind it. We moved to a curtain where ministry and God finally speaks in front of the curtain and we end with a curtain that is torn in half. And God says, there is no more need for a curtain because my son has made a way for humans to come into God's presence. Amen. This is what the story has been building to. It's like I look at the story of the scripture and it's like an hourglass. Everything comes down to this moment and then everything is going to flow out of this moment. That that's what God has done. So now there is a new covenant Jeremiah spoke about it. He said, I, God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to each other, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And Jesus says, I come to bring a new covenant in my blood. And that's what's going on. There's a new covenant, a covenant where God says, I will take on the hard work of the covenant. I will do the heavy lifting. I will be the sacrifice. You need simply to trust. You need simply to have faith. That even when you don't feel it, that even when you don't experience it, that you will trust that what God has done is true and it's true for you. So Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 verse 27 says this, for it was indeed fitting that we would have such a high priest, remember the high priest went into that most holy place, 
holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. That's what the high priest had to do, offer a sacrifice for his sins because he's a sinful person, and then offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But as soon as he got done, you know what he needed to do? Start offering sacrifices again. But Jesus doesn't need to do that. It says, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself as this sinless sacrifice. And this is what God has done in the gospel. God is working out good even when it doesn't feel good. There are cross moments in your life. Pastor Crosby spoke about it last week, if you were here, that you are called to take up your cross and follow the Lord. And in those moments, it may not feel like God is working good. And yet God says, I will work all things together for good for those who are called according to my purpose. So I'm going to ask our worship team to come back. And we're going to close out our service in a song that kind of really tells the story of, of all of this together. I love this song that they're about to sing. But here's what the gospel is. John chapter 1, verse 14, John says this in chapter 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's really what this story is. God with us so that we can be with him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or the way Eugene Peterson translates it in the message is, and God moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> word became flesh. And so we have these four gospels that show us how to live as new covenant Christians when we look at the life of Jesus but they also tell us of what Jesus has done for us. How to summarize this part of the story, I love what uh, uh, author uh, Dick Foth says. He puts it this way. He says, uh, this is one way to summarize the gospel. I'll leave my place. I'll come to your place. I'll take your place. Then we'll go to my place. I think it's a pretty good summation of the gospel. I'll leave my place, I'll come to your place, I'll take your place, and then we'll go to my place. That this is what Jesus did for you and for me. Or another website, Dare to Share, does the acronym of the gospel this way, G-O-S-P-E-L. Gospel, God created us to be with him, Genesis 1 and 2, how it ought to be. Our sins separate us from God, Genesis 3, how it is. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. That's the rest of the Old Testament. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. That's the gospel. Everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. And life forever with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the message that God offers to you and to me. This is what the story's been building to. That God has come. That the curtain might be torn. That you can come into his presence. When your feelings tell you God is distant, trust what you know to be true about God. It's not about what you feel. It's about what is in 
inherently true about who God is and what he says about you. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today and we recognize that we, God, too often are guided by our feelings and not enough by about what we know and what you have revealed to be true about yourself. So help us, Lord. Help us, God. Help us, Lord, to not believe the lies and not trust our feelings, but to trust what you say is true, what we know is true about you. And if you're here this morning with your eyes closed and your head bowed, just as you're taking some sacred space with God, I would be remiss if talking about the gospel, I did not tell you that this gospel is a way to welcome you into God's presence. That this gospel is an invitation to you. And I believe you are here for a reason this morning. And I believe God brought you here. And I believe God wants you to know that he loves you, that he created you, that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And that if you will put your faith and your trust in him, that you can have forgiveness of all your sins and life forever with him. That that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the message God offers to you. And if God has been pulling on your heart and the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you, that this morning you can do that to come into his presence. God has not made it difficult. He's already done the hard work on the cross. He simply invites you to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. To stop trusting yourself and your own thoughts and to trust Jesus. That you would, in your own way and in your own space, pray and say to God, God, I want to put my faith and my trust in Jesus. I want to uh, take my hands off the steering wheel to give you control of my life, to trust that in Jesus and on the cross that my sins are forgiven. And I want to follow you as Lord all the days of my life. It's not hard. God has offered you an invitation behind the curtain into his presence forever. And he loves you, invites you into that. And so if you pray those words and if that's your desire, then I invite you not to walk that road alone. If you prayed those words and somebody invited you here today, tell them today that you've decided to follow Jesus and they'll help you on your walk or tell, come and tell myself, Pastor Marvin, Kathy, Pastor Avon, James, we'd love to help you on your walk with Jesus. Now, Lord, lead us. Lead us into all truth. Guide us in your ways. We thank you for this message of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand and we will close with this song that basically tells the story of what's going on and what Jesus has done.